sheet there? Yeah, I brought my little cue sheet so we can so we can kind of recall where the crap we went because we went a long ways. Uh oh, by the way, everyone, welcome back to the three of seven podcast, the premier ultra running podcast where sometimes we talk about government, sometimes we talk about uh our faith. Very rarely we talk about ultra running, and even more rarely than that, we talk about mountain biking. And today is a mountain biking episode. Well, I guess you could call it. I don't even know if you'd call it mountain biking. It's the recap of mine and James's experience on the TNGA, which stands for Trans North Georgia. It's a I would I would say it has achieved legendary status this race. Yeah, ever I went into a bike shop yesterday because my bike is in need of some <laughs> repairs now and uh it was like I was a celebrity cuz I had just completed TNGA. Yeah. It's a, they were it's a it's a pretty epic legendary ride. Yeah, you get some you get some cred in the mountain bike world I guess if you complete TNGA which makes sense because you know I guess traditionally only about 50% of the people that start actually finish I mean that's the information we gathered right yeah and I think I think for a rookie which we were this is our first for our first attempt it's even it, the dropout rate's even higher mm-hmm. I can see that now just to give you a little context on this event that we're talking about, I don't actually know who designed the route originally. Justin Sheely knows, but I don't know the history of it. It it always it always amazes me these mountain bike these long bike bike packing I guess you should call it these long races. It, it always amazes me like it would take years to design that route. Like somebody put in years and years of work to link up all of these wilderness areas and national forests and trails and fire roads. And they've basically created a route that links up the wilderness across that spans North Georgia. You start on the South Carolina Georgia line and you finish on the Georgia Alabama line. And there's very little paved sections in there um there are a couple little parts where you do get on the roads to kind of link up some some national forest or wilderness area whatever but overall it's you know the vast majority of it is going through on trail and gravel fire road and stuff like that so this thing would have had to have taken years for somebody to create i mean it's always that's always a cool part of these races to me, you know. So I'm I'm reading off of some back bike packing website right here. It says the TNGA is a result of five years worth of scouting and planning efforts by David Muse. So David, thank you, brother. Yeah, I mean, you know, to so I can I could go out here and just right here around the house, and I could come up with a couple different. 50 mile, you know, foot race routes or even 100 mile routes, but a 370 mile route that traverses an entire state, 
I mean, that's pretty cool, I thought. And so, yeah, it's about 370 miles. It's got about 40,000 feet of climbing. And the nature of this race is another cool part. I guess we'll go in now because most of our listeners are, I would say, predominantly runners. Mm -hmm. So we'll go in right now to talk about a little bit what's the the differences between this and a running race. And I would say the first big difference is the fact that the TNGA is completely self-supported. So in a running race, you have aid stations that are placed strategically by the race director every 10 or 20 miles, whatever it may be. And you also have a crew usually at a running race. You have the option at least to have a crew. So you have this team of people around you that can can help you resupply, make sure you have the things that you need. They can, you know, clean your feet up for you. They can meet you at certain intervals with, um, you know, different gear items that you might need. They're kind of taking care of you. That's all laid out for you. Whereas this type of event is... You actually cannot have anyone meet you and help you for any reason. So if you're dang bike breaks out on the course and you call someone or you have someone that you even just meet on the side of the road, call someone. But if you make arrangements for anyone to bring you anything at any time, you are scratched from the race. So if your bike breaks out there on the course, you've got to push your broken bike to the nearest bike shop, which may be 100 miles from where you are, you know, from where your bike breaks at. Um, and in terms of like food and things like that, you've got to ride to the next gas station and hope it's open. You know, you, that's that's the way it works. That, to me, is a tremendous difference. It's something that adds a, a whole nother level of challenge or a whole nother element to TNGA versus a, a long ultramarathon. Yeah, I think the other thing I think about that's different, too, you mentioned the bike, right? So you've got this, this, um, uh, this piece of equipment that is prone to, to break down, especially over really, really difficult, hard terrain. Mm -hmm. So you've got to manage that. But the other piece of it is just your inability, especially going downhill, to just kind of mentally check out. Where, you know, I've been on, I've run an ultra before where it gets dark and you kind of get in that flow state and you're moving and mentally you're kind of checked out a bit you still got to pay attention to the trail watch where your feet are going but if you fall you're gonna fall you're gonna bang up your knee you're gonna get back up you're gonna mm -hmm. keep going man so like we were moving at a high rate of speed down really technical single track single track trail 1 a.m 2 a.m in the morning having been in the saddle for over 12 hours 14 hours whatever it was and you just, you have to be on. You can't let your mind wander or you'll wrap yourself around a tree. Yeah, yeah. I, I hit 46 miles per hour one time coming down a hill. I mean, that's, that's, that's for me, that on a mountain bike, 
And my mountain bike particularly probably weighed about 80 pounds <laughs> with the water in it. So that's fast on, on, a, on a rig like that. And so, yeah, I think you're, get, you're hitting on not only the mental aspect of it, but I think the, the other big difference is the consequences are way yeah. higher um, at this event, TNGA. Like you said, James, in a running race, if you make a mistake, you're going to fall. You might break a wrist. You might twist an ankle. You might get scratched up. But on this event, the consequences are really, really high if you screw up on some of these sections. I mean, literally death mm-hmm. um, or multiple, multiple broken bones, which there was a person out on the course on this particular year that suffered multiple broken bones. And I want to I want to read this comment real quick because in the podcast just last week, I talked, I, I, I made a statement that this race is uh, is not for the faint of heart. Like, it, it is not, th- this race is not for the inexperienced person. This race is not for the person who, you know, has a mountain bike and likes to ride, you know, one day a week and maybe has been riding for a couple of years and is just kind of a weekend warrior. This is, this is not that. And it's, it has nothing to, in my opinion, nothing to do with the the difficulty. Uh, it has everything to do, though, with the skill that has to be applied to this. And here's a comment that I got. This guy right here, Alex Johnson, said, I just got back from TNGA. Also, unfortunately, I got taken out early due to a serious accident. Chad was not exaggerating at all when he says this course is not for everyone, even extremely fit bikers. If you dream of doing TNGA, please listen to him. When he says that this is a more technical mountain bike route than most of the literature and videos would lead you to believe. The route is publicly available. I would advise anyone to ride the entire route, if not two-thirds of it at a minimum, six months before you decide to do it. Riding this route with a rigid fork is too dangerous for anyone but an experienced mountain biker. Same with using drop bars. Not advisable unless you have years of mountain bike experience. And so this guy's just backing up when I'm trying to tell people, if you're listening to this podcast and you think, oh, I like to ride bicycles, I'm going to go do this thing. You, you just can't. This is not something that you just can, can go and just do because you have to have this the skill on the bike applied and then you also have to pair the bike skill with um endurance experience how to eat how to drink how to take care of yourself uh both from a nutrition standpoint and from a medical standpoint um it because it's super remote and it's long Uh, you also have the backpacking and wilderness skills that have to be applied in this. So you have so much more going on and the consequences are so much higher here than they would be at an ultra marathon, you know? And I was glad that guy let that left that comment. Cause we had a guy on uh, we, when we briefly talked about TNGA live on YouTube and you know, there was some guy said, why did it take you so long, Chad? And I said, well, I'll bet you a thousand dollars 
you go and do it next year. I'll bet you a thousand dollars you won't finish in less than ten days. Yeah. And um, I probably shouldn't have made that bet to him <laughs> because like this dude's never mountain bike before. He he started messaging Sheely like right after oh, the podcast really? asking about what mountain bike he should get. He's never rode on a mountain bike. It's like, dude, you're you're gonna freaking kill yourself yeah. out here, man. So that's a huge difference between the two. Yeah, it really is. And the you know, there are courses out there, whether running, bikepacking, whatever, that are designed for a pleasant experience, that are designed for beauty, that are designed for specific things, right? And yep. this one, like, it's beautiful. I mean, we saw some incredible stuff that we'll talk about, but this is not a course that's designed to be pleasurable. This is a course that's designed to see just how much you can take and keep going mm -hmm. because the the trail the i mean we'll we'll get into all the details of it but it is just it is just a brutal brutal course it is that that's exactly the way it's designed i mean it it does have its own it does have its own unique beauty without a doubt but you have to be the right type of person to see the beauty in this race because there are no grand vistas there are no um you know, crap like you're going to see out west, like, you know, you hike to the top of a mountain and, you know, it's just you're in this, you know, beautiful view and all. None of that crap, man, on this race. It's got its own unique beauty, though, in the, the green tunnel of mm -hmm. of the um, the trail systems through Georgia here. But um, I learned, you know, early on in the race we, I think I, I specifically was, were, were all the, tr all the terrain and trails that we covered were totally new to me. So, you know, I didn't know if there was an alternate route, I didn't know about it. I, well, I was just riding the, the route that we, you know, had laid out on GPS. And later on in the race, we got on trails that I was very familiar with. And so we would come to intersections where I would say, okay, there's an we know where we're going. There's an easy way to get there, and there's a really hard way to get there. It's going to be interesting to see which route the you know which route they chose for us to take, and it was always a hundred percent of the time the harder route. It was never the easier route. It was always the harder route, and I, I guarantee you, at ninety percent of the intersections that we came to, there was an easier. Uh, more scenic, more enjoyable way to get to where we needed to go versus the route that we took to get to where we needed to go. Yep. Every single time, it was genius, man. And so this leads me to another component that's different about this to ultra running is the navigation aspect. Um, in ultra running races, maybe even shorter mountain bike races. I don't know, but I've, ne I've never done a short mountain bike race. But in, in ultra running races, the course is marked. So there's some sort of flagging or flags in the ground or something. And, you know, every quarter mile or so, you get you get a ribbon and you know you're still on course. Every intersection is kind of marked out. Well, with this TNGA, the course is, there is no course marking, period. Not a single one. You have to figure out how to get to where you even start the dang thing at. And you're navigating every single turn, every single trail, everything 
off of a GPX file. And, uh, and also, also you have a, a cue sheet that's basically a written turn by turn directions that you can reference. Um, and you could, you could navigate purely off of that cue sheet. If your GPS went down, it would just be a lot slower, but it's just, there's just another, um, another mental component, uh, layered onto this that you don't have an ultra running. I think that's another reason, like you said, it goes back to a lot of ultra races. You can kind of turn off because you just, you're just glancing for the flags. Whereas this, I mean, you're having to watch the GPS, you're having to watch the terrain, you're having to make sure you don't miss a turn. Because if you do miss a turn, which we missed some turns, again, the cost is high, man. Because there not, nothing's flat. So yeah. if you miss a turn, you either you either burn calories going uphill. Well, you're gonna burn calories going uphill, either way. Whether it's on whether it's on the way back to the trail or when you pass your turn. Yep. So navigational aspect is, is another huge difference. I, I would say the similarities are, uh, well, I guess one more difference, a good difference that, that makes it, you know, not as, as difficult in a certain way to ultra running is the bike doesn't beat your body up as bad as a long, long run. So coming out the, the other end of this, you know, I haven't, it, we've been, we've been now done for what, three days. Mm-hmm. I mean, I haven't been working out. I definitely know I did something, but it's, it's not, it's nothing like after I finished Cocodona where my freaking back seized up, I could barely walk. Everything hurt. My body was all dysregulated. It took me a month to recover from it. I mean, with this. I'm, I'm, I came out of it. I'm relatively okay, other than a little fatigue and soreness. So I really like that, that it doesn't really beat you up physically, unless you wreck your bike out, obviously. But as long as you take care of yourself, it's not really killing your joints. Similarities, I would say the basics of nutrition, Mm -hmm. hydration, uh, the basics of, uh, staying patient present being deliberate you know all all the same kind of foundational elements of any endurance event um i'd say it's it's very closely relatable to the the tnga yeah one of the things you mentioned several times out there that i just so agree with as well is that principle of constant forward motion yeah right like like running an ultra or any any endurance event is constant forward motion if we're pushing the bike okay we're pushing but we're moving moving we're moving forward even if we're it's taking slow. ground even if it's slow yep and i think i think that was a uh, just something that is similar in any major endurance feat mm-hmm. I, and i always knew that that was important but i think i told you out on the course the the um the rock course that we do here at 37 project the rite of passage it's really just proven to me over and over again how much ground you can cover if you just simply keep moving even at a slow slow pace if you just keep moving man you can cover a lot of ground in a 24-hour time span so i've always known that's true but um the rock course really solidified that in my mind and i think so there was a point during the race 
and we'll go through this kind of day by day here in just a second, but I want to hit this kind of highlight because this was a real conflict I was having in my mind during the race early on. I think it might have been day one or maybe day two. Um, we weren't covering as much ground as I thought we were going to be able to cover in a day. Because, mm -hmm. I mean, we went, we went out on some long training rides, you know, and you can get out here and cover 50 60 miles in a half a day yeah you know so you know you think you're you're out here racing and you're thinking okay i'm gonna cover 100 120 miles a day because i'm gonna go all day and we just weren't hitting that man we just weren't hitting it and the big reason was because the terrain was so much different but i started thinking what the crap like what we've got to do something here because we're not racing but because be, we weren't racing because we at least i'll speak for myself i knew i couldn't win this yeah. thing like i'm just not experienced enough just period i mean m maybe one day I'll, I'll i'll race this thing you know in a year or two if i really want to train specifically for it but this year wasn't the year we were we were out there to learn but we still wanted to finish as fast as we could possibly finish with the skills and the knowledge and the ability that we had uh, out there while we were doing it. And I kept thinking, what the crap, man? We, all right, we got, we got to do better than this. Uh, we, we, we just rode for 14 hours and we only covered 75, 78 miles, something like that. Like, we got to do better than this. And, you know, that's when I had a conversation with you, James. Like, all right, the only thing that I know that we can do is every time that we stop, we've got to be really deliberate about our time, and we got to get back moving as soon as possible. And um, and we did end up cleaning that up, yep. and I think that helped us hit a little higher mileage every single day. But that's going back to that concept of constant forward motion. And then also toward the end of the race, I I started thinking about you know what, if I could just learn to eat and drink and do everything that I needed to do on the bike while I was going, even if I had to slow down, but I was still moving, that would be a complete game changer. Yeah. I really think it would be. Yeah, I do too. And I think, I think there are places on that course, certainly where that's possible. And then there's places on that course where that's just not possible yeah. because of the terrain. I wanted to look at, you sent me the stop time that the, uh, the race winner had <laughs> it was where, where's that at it was uh i pulled i pulled it right off of the okay. tracker site abe, abe so the guy that abe won Kaufman. the race abe abe won the race he had less than 70 minutes of stopped time he finished in 39 hours so in over the course of 39 hours he was being still for less than 70 minutes so an hour and 10 minutes Unbelievable. So everything that dude did, he did it off his bike. On his bike. Oh, yeah. Yeah, yeah he did it on his bike yep. while he was riding. Like, that hour and 10 minutes was probably like taking a dump. like Refilling so, water. Yeah, right. something it's, that yep. absolutely had to get him off the bike. Yep. And I think that would be the absolute necessity is learning how to do everything you needed to do while you were riding to actually be competitive here. Yeah, and that was... I went. I went and looked. I went and did a little study on it yesterday. Just the other, the other top competitors. 
and that that was the big difference like he he was certainly fast and faster but the big thing that separated him from the rest of those top five top 10 finishers was he had way less stop time yep his moving time was i mean always he was just always moving yeah it was it was that was crazy to watch that dude when he flew by us so yeah let's get into this thing man we decided we james and i decided to start the race a day early now this is a unique component or a unique option that you can opt for on tnga or most of these long mountain bike rides because like we said the route's laid out but there's nobody along the route to to make sure you know you're you're hitting your spots and so every rider is required to have a tracking device on them and that tracking device it pings your location to a a program called track leaders and this program is monitored by the race director so you're being monitored the whole time making sure you're staying on route making sure you're you know you're not getting in a truck and you know all of a sudden your things pinging 40 miles per hour going up a hill um, so that's where the accountability comes from so you're allowed to start a day early if you need to because of your scheduling or whatever's going on in your life uh, because you have that accountability of that tracker now if you start if you if you opted to start a month early you can't really count that because you're going to have totally different weather totally different environmental conditions yep. than the people who start on the grand depart uh, which is the the official date and time of the race but starting a day or two early you're experiencing the same types of conditions as everybody in the grand depart I had a dang speaking engagement booked for Thursday. The race was supposed to start Saturday. So I didn't know if I could get back home. If I started Saturday, I didn't know if I could get back home in time to fulfill my obligation for the speaking engagement. Or maybe if I did get back home in time, I was going to be so dead tired that I was just going to do a terrible job. So we both agreed to start Friday uh, around midday. 1030 is when we started. And... Um, Drove out to the little bridge there on the South Carolina Georgia line, and right off the bat, old James started having troubles. <laughs> what kind of? I just, I just, so I just made the video log for the YouTube channel today, and uh, the first few videos are you, try, you standing there with your phone, oh, trying, trying to get, to get the, the route uploaded to your uh, to your GPS there, which was a waste of time. It ended up being because <laughs> that GPS unit didn't last long. Um, and we, uh, we got, we got going finally at about 11 o'clock and the, the fur the, the beginning stages of every time you go out and do an adventure like this, the beginning stages to me are always kind of a little odd because like, you're not, you're not in it. You, you feel, I always feel out of place. Hmm. Like I'm just, I'm. I'm fresh, I'm going, I'm like, well, this doesn't really feel hard. 
you know, you're still all clean and your, your clothes are clean and you've got all the best food. And I just, it takes me a while to get in it. Like, okay, this, now I know what I'm doing, you know? Yeah. Yeah. I think for me, that first day was all about figuring out kind of the rhythm. I mean, it was a, the, there was that first what 30 miles or so of that first day is it's challenging there's a lot of elevation gain and loss and um but like you said you're fresh you feel good yeah but it's figuring out that rhythm of which took me a while to figure out of when to eat how much to eat when to drink how much to drink pace Uh, pace yeah, yeah so that we're not going out too hard we're not charging a hill too hard so because we got 10 more after that one um just beginning to really settle in and figure out those rhythms which a few of them we did charge too hard for yeah. sure yeah. I, and, and i thought about that too you know i remember a few of those those steep hills in that first day and we would ride up them yep and i remember thinking we won't be riding up hills like this by day three yeah we by were, day three yeah. uh I remember that. And so that's another part for me on day one. I'm anticipating when is this going to get hard? Mm -hmm. You know, you want it to be hard right off the bat, but it's just not. And so you're just waiting. You're waiting. Okay, when is this? Yeah, okay, that's a pretty hard terrain. That was a hard, that wasn't that bad, you know, and you're waiting for it. And uh, it ain't going to come in the first day. I yeah. mean, unless you're just totally inexperienced and fat and out of shape, it's not going to get hard the first day. Yeah, yeah, it, 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 it really didn't. It was, it was beautiful. Passed, we did pass through some of the most beautiful part of the state. I thought you it remember is. those hay fields and, yep. you know, just old country kind of. We had a couple little road sections yep. that was just beautiful, man. Yeah, those that north. East Georgia, kind of north of Clayton, that whole area up in there. That's where we were. And man, it was. It's just beautiful up there. So the I remember getting to that hiker hostel on the first day, like the evening. Mm-hmm. You remember that? Yep. Yep. We pulled up in there. You took you a big fat steamer. Yep. yep. Down there in the <laughs> down there in the uh they had them a little Porta John yep. out there for us, and I and I remember the sun was setting. Kind of, it was it was kind of getting dusty dark when we pulled up into that hiker hostel. Um, we refilled our water, and I remember thinking, "Daggone, man, it's it's already getting dark out here, and we've only covered fifty five miles." And that was kind of the beginning of me thinking, "This is." This is not what I expected. It's taking way longer. It's taking way longer than Especially I thought it would. Especially because that first day, there were no long stops like built into the day, meaning we no. didn't pass any grocery stores. We, there was no need to resupply. We didn't need to go in anywhere and have lunch. Like we, we, were, we were out on the trail all day. All day, yeah. We didn't stop in Dillard, right. which was the one town that we passed through. Um. Yeah, so we 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 were going all day long. Hiker hostel uh got refilled our water and uh took off again. And on my cue card I have all these things. 
that we didn't hit any of them. Food, food south, lakeside, gas station north at 77 miles. I never saw no gas station at 77 miles. Uh, I don't know. I guess all this is just stuff that's off course. It must be off course. Yeah. And so we, um, we leave the hiker hostel, get back on the trail. And when did we decide to try to make it to that church? Because I don't think, I don't think, I think we, we were talking about maybe pulling off before that, yeah. right? Yeah, I can't, I, I remember it, I remember it got dark on us. My light wasn't working. Yep. I mean, for like from the get-go, my light stopped working well. Handlebar mounted light. The yep. handlebar mounted light. So I was trying to ride with that headlamp and... I, I'm trying to remember. I don't. I don't. I don't remember what led us to say we need to let's try to push to this church, but that's what we that's what we ended up doing. And I I also remember once we decided we were going to try to push to the church, which was at mile seventy eight. I also remember like both of us because we we popped out on a little bit of road there. And we were like, where's this freaking church at? Yeah. Like, where's this church at? Yeah. Like, we came to a few intersections. Oh, I remember you saying, that looks like a good place for a church to be. And it, it wasn't there. It, wasn't there. And it just wasn't Ride there. Some more and it still wasn't there. You just keep riding. And then finally, we get to an intersection where we have to take a left. Well, the church still isn't there. But we kind of see some lights up ahead of us maybe a half mile off course. And I think I had also pulled it up yeah, on my cell yeah. phone and I was like, that's gotta be it. And so we actually rode about a half mile past our turn off course. And there's this little country church, Mount Zion Baptist church. Yep. Right there. And they've got a little pavilion, you know, where they do their arts and crafts and whatever. And we pull up in there and it's right on the edge of a, uh, an old cemetery. I don't remember what time it was. It was late. It was late. It was after midnight, I think. Yeah, it was late. And that's where we decided to bed down for the night. Yep. Um, we had that gourmet dinner that night. Holy you crap, remember that? man. Okay. <laughs> yeah. So that's another thing. My bike was already so heavy, man. I didn't bring a stove. I didn't bring dehydrated meals. I didn't bring anything that was worthy of like a good hot dinner. I just assumed there would be, surely, there would be enough places that we would pass on route that at least we could get some like gas station pizza or something like that for dinner. Nothing. That first 78 miles, nothing on route. We didn't, I, I don't know. Yeah, we didn't see anything. So, we, yeah, we we laid, we bivvied up under that pavilion. And I think I had a can of sardines and some Ritz crackers. That's what I ate for dinner. And you ate the dang Pop-Tart, All didn't I you? had was a Pop-Tart to eat. That was my dinner. <laughs> I mean, that's rough, son. 13 hours, terrible terrain, cramming been, a Pop-Tart in your mouth. Been eating sugary <laughs> snacks and hiking snacks and crap all day long. That was rough. And you got to end the day with a Pop-Tart. Yep. Yeah. That's pretty rough, man. Was, I was I was hungry come that next day. 
I remember sleeping pretty good under that pavilion, yeah. though. It was cool that night. It actually cooled. That was really the only night it actually cooled down. Which that plays into our story later on yeah. because we did. It cool. It got down to like 57 degrees yep. that night or something is what I heard and actually got chilly. Yep. Now, I didn't bring a sleeping bag. I didn't bring anything like that. Neither did you, James. Yep. We just had, you know, some base layers that we could throw on. Uh, and James had a piece of Tyvex um, that he could just roll up in. And I had an actual bivy sack, but didn't didn't end up providing any sort of warmth at yeah. all. And so I remember wake do remember waking up a few times early in the morning, those early morning four or five a.m. and being slap freaking cold, yep. man. Yep. Um, the sun came up and the church folk started rolling in, son. Started coming to tend to the cemetery. Yep. Yep. <laughs> that was uh. Their reaction to us being there, though, was actually pretty cool. It was cool. We we were we had made ourselves at home, especially me. I tend to travel uh, on something like this, whether it's backpacking or uh, or uh, bike packing. I tend to travel light, but when I get somewhere, I like to spread all my stuff out. So I yeah, know I can just see, just look around, see where everything is. So I had a little gypsy camp set up underneath the pavilion there, and. Oh boy, and his wife come pulling in right about sunrise and comes pulling right up to us. I thought, oh man, we're about to get run out of here. You boys sleep all right? Yes, sir. If you're going to be around tomorrow, come join us for church. <laughs> yeah. That was awesome. That man. was awesome. They invited us to church. He didn't know if we were vagrants, homeless, bums, criminals. He didn't care. I, I really, that, I really like that show of just Christian the body of Christ, you know, brotherhood, like, Hey, we don't care. You look like a bum. You're actually on this property and you have really no Probably right trespassing. Yeah. You have no right to be here, but, um, uh, but we're, we're going to be cool with it. Right. Yep. That was awesome. And then some more church folks pulled in, they let me go in and use their bathroom and they were just, uh, really welcoming seemed like loving people yep. and i that, that that really filled me up man because they could have been they could have said what get get off of yep. get get out of here like what do you you can't be here they could have very easily did that and we would have packed our stuff up and left and we, yep we'd been on our way yeah um so we woke up that morning first day you know like we said it wasn't it wasn't never really got hard well this coming up day two, that's where we started to kind of get settled in and say, okay, this is going to be legit. And so I think it's a good time before we get into the hard part to talk about why you even decided to do this, man. Mm. Because, you know, having a reason for doing something like this isn't really important until it does get hard. Yeah. Um, and so before we talk about when it got hard, why, like, why did you stay out there and stick it out and stay through it? You know, I, th I thought about that going into it. And then of course, while we're out there, you start thinking about that a lot. And for me, it's, it's, it's two big things. Um, one is I'm in my mid forties now and I'm very aware that I'm getting to the age to where 
when I stop doing something, thinking that I'm going to start back up at it again, specifically something physically that's really hard, that demands a level of fitness and uh, muscular ability and things like that. If I stop and think that, well, I'll pick that back up when the kids are older. The reality of that happening is pretty slim. And if it does, I'm not going to be able to perform anywhere near the level that I can today. And so I'm very aware of that. I'm also, the reality is the last two years I've signed up to do something really hard and I failed at it. I didn't finish to the degree that I wanted to. I didn't meet my expectations or my standards. And so, uh, I knew going in, like, I need this. I need to get out. I need to push myself. I need to do something really hard. And I need to, it, it needs to be completed regardless of, of what it takes from, from me physically. Um, so that was, that, that was a big reason. The other big reason is over the course of the last month, month and a half, my father-in-law, who I just love dearly, lives, uh, lives down the road from us in our neighborhood. Um, he's, he's been going through some real significant health struggles with, with brain cancer and lung cancer and a number of other things. And, um, I've watched him fight his battle and he's always been so supportive of me and everything that I do, all these crazy challenges and things. And so, uh, he was also part of the why it's mm -hmm. like, I know while I'm out there pushing and fighting against this trail, he's out there pushing and fighting against cancer, his body, this treatment, and uh, his battle is so much harder than mm -hmm. what I've got to do, right? Mine's got an end date. Uh, his, his, he doesn't know when his end date is. Yeah, yeah. And, uh, and so just felt like it was, it was kind of a thing to do for him as much as it was for me. Mm -hmm. That's all good stuff, man. Yeah, not, not backing off and thinking that you can just pick something up, you know, later on in life and jump right back. Like, you, you're right, man. You can't. You can't make the decision just to kind of cruise. Yeah. There's no such thing as cruising through. No. Like, there's no such thing as that. Like, it. people don't understand this. If you're not pressing forward, you are going backwards. Yep. You, there are only two directions you can go, forward and backwards. In life, in fitness, in your faith, um, in your business, there's this. There's always the temptation to cruise, especially when you've already accomplished some things, yep. when you've made some money, when you when you've done some hard physical challenges, when you you know when you have firmly grasped the gospel. Uh, there's always this is the greatest temptation for us who have achieved certain things. You know, in my my view on that, Chad, I I so agree with that, and I and I also don't think. I don't think you can uh, be moving forward effectively in one area of your life and be moving backwards in the other areas, if that makes sense. At least for, like, for me, there is such a direct connection between how I'm pushing myself physically, spiritually, yeah. relationally with my family and my kids, professionally. And if I start getting, if I start letting off on one of those areas, it's not like, oh, that creates margin. So now I give more attention to my family, more attention. It doesn't work that way. Mm. 
when I start letting off physically, well, then I start, my discipline starts slipping professionally and I start backsliding spiritually. I'm not as disciplined to yeah. spend time with, with the, in the word. Then relationally things fall off. It's like it, it doesn't, there's this myth or this idea that says, well, if I back off this, it'll create margin for these other things. That has not been my experience. My experience is I back off in one area and every area suffers. That's so true, man. I always wonder about you too, because you know, you and your wife, Pop-Tart, they, um, <laughs> well, you guys both really are a shining example of how a family can operate. In, in my opinion, like I said, the way that you guys live as both, both as husband and wife and as father and mother, uh, and as individuals, like it's very, very inspiring to me. Mm. And I always wonder too, like for you, because now your son, your son and your daughter are of an age where they can understand the magnitude of something like TNGA, like, wow, my dad's going to do this, this thing, man, that's, you know, they, they can understand at least partially that, okay, this is legit. Uh, this is long. This is hard. This is not something that most normal people would ever do. You know, does, does showing does showing them that or, or at least being able to share that with them and just leading by example for them, like, is that a driver? Because I don't have kids. Like, yeah. yeah, it's, it's, it's huge for me. I think, I think one of the most, um, one of the biggest areas of deficit in this upcoming generation is in the area of resilience. I just, I think we are raising as a culture, as a society, um, weak young men and young women that are not resilient, that don't recover quickly from challenges or um, pain, suffering, conflict, whatever. Uh, they, they, just, they just don't have resilience. And I am committed <laughs> with everything and like everything I can do to raise children who are resilient, who will mm -hmm. be young adults and adults that are resilient. And there's all, I only know one way to teach it and that's to model it and to yeah. do it and to do it with them and put them in difficult situations and, and walk with them through that. And so I get warm my soul, man. I yet literally uh, Wednesday. So we finished Tuesday, Wednesday, Cam comes back from school we're having dinner together and he says, Hey daddy. I said, yeah, what's up, bud? He says, uh, I told my class today about your bike ride. And I said, Oh really? He said, yeah, my teacher, I think my teacher thought I was lying. <laughs> I said, why do you think that? Because I told her it was over 370 miles and she just kind of was like, Oh really? Wow. That's yeah. That sounds nice. Like, <laughs> like she did not believe him. And I'm like, I love that. Like, I love that my son, has that story to tell that's about so me cool, yeah. that's on the such on the extreme side that people kind of roll their eyes at it um, because that that sets a standard for him of what's possible. Well, that's what I was just about to say. I mean, just that. So him, him 
seeing you and and seeing you do these things and complete these things uh as a as a very young man or or even your daughter as a young lady young woman um it's going to have to influence their decision making process when they do become adults yeah like it's 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 got it's got to it's got to impact their de- the decisions they make in a good way, yeah. right? And not saying that they're going to be perfect and they're going to be just like you, but they've got that example from their from their mother and their father of like, okay, this is this is the this is the standard. Yeah, You're right. Yeah, and when you you know if you were to sit down and talk to my kids about the things that they want to do, it would probably be different than yeah. a lot of the a lot of other kids that you would talk to because. Mara wants to through hike the Appalachian Trail. That's one of her dreams. Mm-hmm. She's 12 years old, 12-year-old girl. How many 12-year-old girls even know what the Appalachian Trail is? Mm-hmm. That's one of her dreams is to through hike the AT. You know, Cam's already talking about someday how he and I maybe could do TNGA together. Yeah, yeah, because you know, he's got his mountain bike now. Yep, so like it's, it's planting those seeds. And whether we ever do that or not, the conversations and the mindset is developing in him at nine years old that says... That's something worth doing. Mm-hmm. It's worth doing something that's hard and painful because of the growth that comes out of the other side of mm-hmm. it. I was thinking about that while we were out there. Actually, there was a moment where I was like, man, in in probably less than 10, you're less than 10 years away from being able to do this with your son. Yeah. And I was like, man, that's really cool. I kind of, I kind of covet that, you know, that's you can, really cool. You can come along with us. Yeah, I guess I could tag <laughs> along, but. Um, no, that's good stuff, man. You know, I, I, um, for me and in, in my why, I guess I'm, I guess I'm, I don't know, man, I'm at a weird place in my life when I ask myself, why do I keep doing these things? I'm just at a strange place because it's not. It's not to have more content. Like I have, I have hundreds and hundreds of stories and videos and photos and and everything you know, content-wise to 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 feed what I do for a living here at Three or Seven Project. It's um, it's not to prove anything. Usually, it's not to prove anything to myself. It's dang sure not to prove anything to anybody else. It's it's none of those things. I don't know. When I think about my why, there's a part of it that's like, was well, just because it's there. <laughs> it's like some it's there. So, somebody made this. Like somebody created this, and they say it's really really hard. So that's why I'm going to go do it because it exists. I even think maybe that go, that's been kind of a common thread throughout my life even signing up for to to be a seal in the navy. Yeah. It was like why if I if I think back and I'm totally honest with why I did that. It wasn't for service to my country. It wasn't um for a career it wasn't because I liked guns. It wasn't because I wanted to travel. It was just like, well, 
this thing is there and somebody said it's really, really hard. Yeah. And so I'm just going to go, I'm going to go do it. I don't know what draws me to that. Something incessantly draws me to these things that exist, but specifically the things that are touted as like the hardest things. Something draws me to them. Um, I think a, another part for me, I feel a responsibility. I do feel a responsibility as someone who God has given a platform to be able to speak on this podcast or through social media or whatever. I do feel a responsibility to practice the things that I preach continuously. Um, cause like I said, I do believe that if you're not pressing forward, you are going backwards. So I think there's a part of, of that for me. It's like, if I stop, I'm disqualified to, and, and maybe that's not even true, but if I stop, I, I feel like I'm disqualified from, from doing things like this. Mm. Um, and yeah, I could fake it. But I couldn't live with myself. Yeah, I could. I couldn't. I, I don't know how people live with themselves that that are faking, that have platforms, and they're faking, you know, their their entire persona. Yeah. Uh, so it feels good to be able to do things like this, and just have the confidence that like I'm not faking it, man. Yeah. Like this is for real, right? I think I also feel a responsibility toward I told I said I don't have children. But the people who who support 307 podcast, the people who li- listen to the podcast, the YouTube channel, this is a poor analogy, but I almost see this body of 307 project as like I I hate to say my children. Because they're not children. A lot of them have more life experience than I have. But they are, it's this group of people that I have the opportunity to set an example for or maybe show them what's possible Mm -hmm. for them. And so I I feel that responsibility. And I think I achieve that through these, through these things, you know, a couple, couple thoughts on that, on that, because I think I, I totally get what you're saying. I think on the first one you mentioned just about it being, you know, being naturally drawn to the extreme, to the hard, to the difficult. You know, I, I think there's something innate within us that God wired within us as men towards that end. And so, and, and, and a lot of females too, it just, it, sometimes it looks different in the way it is. I mean, you think about young kids, right? My 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 son, when he was five, six years old, he didn't he didn't dress up and play real estate agent. He dressed up and played Navy SEAL mm-hmm. or Army guy, right? Like mm-hmm. because there's something about that adventure, about the diff that even at that young age appeals to him and his soul and the way that God has wired him. I think our culture and our society has has softened that and and constrained that within young men um and but but i think it's in there i think there i think there's something and you've lived the lifestyle where like that has been fed your whole life and it's and it's it's a hunger that you have that god uses 
to grow your influence and to grow your platform. I think, I think that's awesome. Um, the other thing that I noticed on this, I noticed it at Coca-Dona too, is you doing these things does inspire people. And there's clear evidence of that because we get to a trailhead and there's like, there's somebody who's there waiting on you. They've been tracking you on the track and they just want, they're not there because they think you're this unbelievable thing. And Oh, if I could only get Chad's autograph, they just want to tell you, yeah. hey, you've really inspired me. I've signed I've signed up to do this race because of what you're doing. Yeah. And it's more than a race to me because it has an impact on every area of my life. Like, it's happening. Like people are seeing you engage in these difficult things, um, and push through and live out the principles and the standards that you teach. And it inspires, it, it, it inspires. Yeah. Yeah, you're right. You're right. It, um, that's really cool. I mean, I never thought, and, and like, I hold that very dear. Like I take that very seriously, man. Like, this stuff that I'm doing with my life, it's not a joke to me. Yeah. It's not something that I'm just doing for fun. It's not something that I'm doing to to make people laugh or, you know, to. it's just not a joke to me, man. I mean, this is my life. Yeah. This is what I do professionally, you know? So, um, yeah, it's it's amazing at, uh, at the people that it has impacted in that's pretty special. And that, that's a, that's a big part of my why, man, for yeah, sure. I, I believe it. you know, not everybody, most people don't get the opportunity to spend the type of time with you that I do and, and do something like this with you. But I, I just, I just, for those listening, there's, there's an authentic, there's a real authenticity to what, to what you're saying right now, to what Chad's saying right now. It's like, it's serious to him. You know, we could have, we could have easily taken six seven days to do tnga and still finished it and still been sitting here having a conversation and talking about how hard it was and how we pushed and making ourselves feel and look real good but two days in you pulled me aside and said dude we got to tighten this up we're not we're not we're not pushing like we can push yeah and we got to tighten up i didn't i didn't i didn't feel that tension mm -hmm. you felt that tension mm-hmm and because, and I think a part of why you felt that tension is you feel that responsibility to say, well, if I'm gonna if I'm gonna be out here, I doggone well better be pushing, because that's what I communicate to other people they need to do. That's what that's how I communicate growth comes. And if I'm not doing it, then I'm I'm not being I'm not being true to what I say. Yeah, yeah. and I just see that in you in a different way than most people. Well, thank the Lord for that because I, you know, that's to me, it, it comes, that part of me comes, I guess you could say naturally, like I don't have to, I, I don't try for that. It's just, it's, 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 it's innate almost. So thank the Lord for that. And I, I think that's another thing I want to discuss on this is, um, it kind of ties into why, but kind of not when, when I start something like this, like the TNGA, like the Cocodona. Uh, and when I start the TNGA with you, James, mm -hmm. um, 
it is just implied that we're going to finish. Mm-hmm. Like there, there's no, there's, there is no out period. Mm-hmm. And I felt that when we started this, because it, this was something that's brand new to me uh, and, and to you. <laughs> it's something brand new, but like you, I, I go into this thing with, there is no out except through barring a catastrophe broken bones destroyed bicycle whatever but we're going to salvage every possible resource Mm -hmm. that we can salvage and leverage it to get us across the finish line as quickly as possible and i wanted to hit this man because i don't think people go into these events with that mindset not very many people. I think there are too many people that are going into these races, these hard challenges that that they've decided to take upon themselves. They go into these things and they go into them with a bunch of little outs mm-hmm. in the back of their mind, right? And when you go into these things with the mindset that I'm talking about, it's hard to process that almost. It's like, okay, I've got it. There is no out. I've got to do this, man. Look, you can't have a plan B going in because you're going to take it. If you go into, look, if you're starting, if it comes down to the day for you to start, an ultra marathon, a long bike race or something, and you know you you have not trained properly, you're not prepared. You know you haven't tested your gear properly. Um, you go into it and maybe maybe you're sick, maybe you don't you, you're dealing with an injury, all the, these things that will give you an out. All the things I just named. Yep. They're going to give you an out. It's better for you not to start, in my opinion. So if it gets to race day for you, listener, and you have all these things. Now, now I'm not saying everything needs to be perfect leading up to race day. But if you know in your heart, I didn't put in the work I should have put in for this. Or, or... You know, I'm 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 dealing with something back home or I'm dealing with something physically or it is better for you just to not start than for you to start and then take that out. Because yeah. you will take it. Guaranteed. And what you end up doing is you develop the habit of starting something and not finishing it. Yep. That's why it's better just not to start. Would you agree with that? I would. I heard somebody after, I think it, man, I can't remember if it was after Cocodona or before, and I wish I could give them credit. I don't remember who it was. It was on a podcast or something. I don't remember. But they said this. They said, if you go into something and you know in your heart you haven't trained and you haven't prepared for it, you'll find a reason to quit. That has been my experience. Yeah, 
That has been my personal experience. If I show up and I toe the line and I'm not confident that I've put in the work to earn my spot at this line, then it's way too easy to find a reason to quit along the way. Because deep down, you don't believe you belong. You don't believe you belong You belong there in the first place. Yep. And you need to, when you show up, you need to believe, I, I belong right here. I've put in the work. I've put in the training. I've prepared. I, I deserve, I belong to be on this starting line. Mm-hmm. And I'm going to deserve the finish when it comes. And that's the only outcome that I'm that I'm that I'm willing to accept. Yep. And it's all about this is this is so important because it's all about the habits that you're that you're creating in your life. And it's, it's such a big part of events like this, challenges like this that transfer into your your real your real life. Um because here's the thing. Nobody cares if you quit. Yeah. No, because, and and most people are going to buy into your excuse. 99.9% of people around you are going to buy in to the reason that you, that you tell them that's why you quit. Right? Yep. But there's the 0.1%. I'll go ahead and tell you, I'm part of the 0.1% that I see right through your <laughs> bull crap. I'm talking about I see plumb through it, son. And when you go into something and you choose to take the out and you don't finish, you start to get you, you start to get used to how that feels. Yep. Oh, that wasn't that bad. Hmm. Yeah, I did I didn't finish. Maybe it felt bad at the time or for a couple of days. But, you know, everybody forgot. Everybody around me forgot about it. As a matter of fact, I'm even forgetting about it. And um, I'll, I'll give it another shot some other time. And you start to get used to that, man. You can't get used to that. You can't get used to how that, how that makes you feel. Because you'll start to do that in every area of your life. I'm telling you, man. That is, that is so good and so true i wish people would understand this Uh, yep yeah well all right we'll go into day two leave the church and head up top of trey mountain so we we pulled out day two well i think we got up about 5 30 or 6 that day we we after day two, we started getting up and getting going early because we knew we had to cover cover more ground. But I think we I think we pulled out about seven o'clock. Does that seem right? Something like that. Day yeah. Two? yeah. Sun was up. Yeah. Sun was, was up. Morning, but sun was up. Yep. And we were headed headed straight up Trey from there, pretty much. I think. Trey Mountain was a long climb. Finally made it to the top. It was a hard climb. Hard gravel. Climb. Yep. It's gravel climb. But coming off Trey Mountain. Is when crap got real, man. <laughs> there, there's so coming off that mountain. Talk about that, James. Hickory so, nut. So there's a section coming off the backside of Trey, right for it. So the the way the course is laid out, go up Trey Mountain, come back that, come down the backside, and then you 
come out into like Unicoi State Park and then down into Helen. Well, that stretch out the back end of Trey Mountain is called Hickory Nut. And Hickory Nut is this incredibly steep section. Literally, it's like a, I don't, I don't even know that it's a fire road as much as it was a fire break or something with just big, like, I don't know what, to, I mean, like bigger than basketball size boulders, just thick, strewn all down the mountain. It literally looked like somebody had taken and moved some of these big rocks right in the middle of the trail. I, I, I remember thinking that too. I can't believe that they did, but that's literally what it looked like. And it is just steep and relentlessly just rocky down the side of this mountain. And if you come off your bike, you're going to go over the handlebars and you're going to smash your face into one of these big rocks. It's there's freaking just, dangerous, there's just no other way around it. I mean, it's, you're going to get hurt if you come off and it's long. Yes. I mean, it's hours of just slowly, just boom, just pounding down this, yeah, this thing. Cause you can't, you, you think it's downhill. Oh, you're just bombing downhill and it's rocky. No, no, no. There's no bomb in this. You are just, you're on your brakes. I mean, I, I remember my, like my forearms getting tired from just holding those brakes because you got to, you, you're just holding back everything you can to uh, slowly methodically make your way down that, down that mountain. I remember thinking, how, how are the bikes going to survive this? Yeah, That's how rough it was. And your bike took some pretty big damage. Yeah, I took. Down I, there. I bent my rear disc coming down the hickory nut. There, I mu it must have slammed against a rock or something. Put a good good dent in my rear disc. Put a big dent in my rear wheel. Bent my rear wheel to the point that by the time we got to the bottom, that thing was that thing looked like a potato chip. It was just it was limping, son. <laughs> yep scrubbing against the brakes and it was in bad shape yeah yeah that so that was my first exposure to you know really technical downhill mountain bike riding um and i don't think anybody else rides down that yeah i think that's justin actually told me there's a much easier route off a of trail tray mountain into helen like a really nice route and they and basically TNGA and the old bear hunters yep, that, that are walking their dogs, you know, yep. try through the woods trying to strike up a bear. That we're the only people who use that route. I believe it because I can't imagine what else it would be useful for. It was it was god awful, son. Uh, so that was super intense. And by the time we dropped down into Helen. I'm actually nearly out of food. Yeah. Because I, again, I was thinking in day one, looking at the cue sheet, there, I was thinking these places were on course and we'd pass a couple of resupply points. I'm nearly out of food. So we made a decision. Okay, we're going to spend some time in Helen to get a good meal in us because our breakfast that, our breakfast that morning, James, you ate a bagel with peanut butter. And some M and M and M and M's sprinkled on top. What was I? I don't even remember what I ate for breakfast. I don't either. It, it was something, something absolutely ridiculous. Yeah, 
um, probably a gel or something I like think that. It was like a gel and some crackers or yeah, something. Yeah, or honey and crackers maybe. It might have been. Yeah. And so we said, okay, we're gonna take, we're gonna get a good meal in our belly here in Helen. So we ate at Cowboys and Angels, a little burger joint there in Helen. It was good too. Had an awesome waitress, good food. Um, we got slap full of food, and then hit the hit the grocery store. I overdid it a little in the grocery <laughs> store. I don't like being out there and thinking I'm going to run out of food. So oh I said, I'm not going to let this happen again, man. Chad comes out of the grocery store with four or five bags. Now, mind you, we're on the bike. We got these little packs. He's already packed heavy and, and full. Like, it looks like all the bags are full. And he comes out, four or five bags worth of groceries. And I'm like, man, where are you going to put all that? I'll find a spot. <laughs> He's shoving bananas in his... <laughs> wherever he can find a spot there's food he's got apple fritters and all sorts of stuff it was that was pretty funny hey man if you run out of food out there you ain't going nowhere that's for sure and so i i did not like that feeling of like okay i'm running really low on food here like i got a couple gels left to get me down into helen yeah and uh and we spent some time there and that was good because I, I got I got plussed up on food enough that I never had. Matter of fact, I still I just I still had them apple fritters with me <laughs> when I unpacked my bike uh, after the race was over. So I got to hit the head real quick. Yeah. And we'll pick up on this. All right, we're back. I just had a I just released a YouTube video today that's titled "Why the Great Government Taxes You to Death." <laughs> <laughs> Check and see how that Man, you are you are itching to get demonetized. I can't believe uh, the government just approved me for a suppressor. Really? I went and got my suppressor yesterday, so All right. they're obviously not watching my YouTube channel. Yeah. Um, anyways, we leave out of Helen. Now, <laughs> this is the what you said was one of the hardest or the hardest climb for you, right? Going up to Hogpen. Yeah, so you there's know, a road. I, I feel like this next section was the low point for me for the whole race. Well, talk me through it or talk the listeners through it. Um, we came out of Helen and I was hoping to be able to get there used to be a little bike shop in Helen. So I was hoping to get my my disc fixed and my wheel trued in Helen and I couldn't. There was no bike shop there anymore. So already a little deflated just heading out of there knowing that i'm gonna have to ride the next hundred and some odd miles with my bike like it is um but and then we had a big lunch i mean felt good ate got our calories all in us and immediately immediately out of helen we hit it's hog pen right i think it's the first yep, one hog pen and hog pen is just a long brutal road climb in the heat of the day in the heat of the day it's like three i think it was three o'clock in the afternoon by the time we pulled out of helen something like that so it's right in the heat of the day it was hot it was long we happened to be (laughs) we happened to be pedaling up there at the same time as some south atlanta dodge charger club decided that they were going to race up and down the mountain with you know with their uh, GoPros hanging out the window and squealing tires, and that just that just pissed me off royally. Oh, anyways, because you're you're riding. I mean, it's a steep, windy hill, a climb, 
and there is no shoulder to the road. The road's not wide enough for a shoulder. So you're right on the white line, and you got these guys just flying past you, throwing donuts in the road, coming back. Anyway, loud as crap. Loud as crap. And uh, I was just, I was just I was just struggling on that climb for whatever reason. And uh, mentally, I started to just started to lose focus. Started to get impatient with it. And uh, and what we didn't talk about is that on the morning of day two, which so it would have been it would have been this that morning, morning that morning, uh, Chad and I were going to switch, and I was going to navigate day two, and he was going to not navigate uh, so that we could save battery power on his GPS. We would use mine. It also, I also wanted to relieve myself of a little mental strain. Yeah, you yeah, because you screwed me. I on mean, that. he's carrying all the weight, right? <laughs> And so I'm just kind of a tick at this point, just hanging on to Chad's, hanging on to Chad's rear tire. Uh, but we, uh, I, I said, yeah, man, I'll love to navigate. And I go down to reach down literally to turn on my unit and it was gone. It had fallen off, uh, somewhere, probably on Hickory nut. I'm yeah. not sure where, but probably coming down Hickory nut. Um, it had fallen off. And so, no, it would have, it wouldn't have been Hickory nut. Cause it, anyways, uh, it was gone. And so I didn't, I didn't have my GPS unit on this long climb. I have no idea like how far we are into the climb, how much longer it is. And, uh, I just started feeling just like depleted and, uh, and we finally got up to the top of the climb, uh, come back down the other side, down into Vogel state park. Uh, we pulled into Vogel and man, I was just, I was tired. I didn't feel good. Uh, I had not fueled well. I think I thought in my mind that we ate so much food in Helen that I could just like, I would be fine on this climb. I didn't mm-hmm. need to worry about food and hydration as much because we just topped everything up. And, and I think in hindsight, what I realized is we were so calorie deficient going into Helen after our pop tart and bagel dinner the night before. And, you know, long hours in the saddle all that did is bring us back to like, bring us back to neutral. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. And then we did this big climb and I just didn't, I didn't, didn't eat well, didn't drink well. And when we got down into Vogel, I just felt like I just wanted to go to sleep. Um, but we got down there and, uh, I got a Coke and, uh, I forget something else to eat and started slowly started feeling a bit better. Uh, coming right out of Vogel. So literally you come back down, you come down the backside of hog pen, come out of Vogel and you're going right back up wolf pen. Yep. Which is not quite as bad of a climb, but just marginally easier. And, uh, so those, those two climbs to me, that was, um, they weren't terrain wise. They were on the road. They weren't a bad terrain climbs. They were just long sustained efforts right in the heat of the day. Yeah, and to give you some context on that climb out of Helen on, up to Hogpen Gap, that climb, I'm, I'm going to say, is about six miles. That sounds about right. Yeah, I think it's about six miles. And that's in, we're on 12-speed mountain bikes, and that's in the lowest granny gear that yeah. you can get that thing in. Um, that's pretty much the only way you're, that's, the grade is steep enough that that's the only way you're moving forward is in that lowest granny gear. And yeah, I think it was a combination of what you said 
eating and drinking, but also the heat of the day, the asphalt. Yeah. Um, riding on the road is also can be mentally taxing too when you have cars flying up behind you and you're just sitting there like, okay, well, if I get hit, yep, I get hit, man. Like it's hard to release you have the tension yeah. around that. You have no idea what's coming because they're coming from behind, mm-hmm. right? So you don't know. Like it could any minute, it's just yeah, get whacked. And these kids going like crazy, and these char- Dodge Chargers, like James said, um, coming out of Vogel, that's when Abe passed us. Yep. So w- again, we started not quite an entire day earlier, but dang near yep. a day earlier. And here comes the first place rider that started on Saturday. Saturday at eight o'clock or something. We started we started Friday at eleven o'clock. Give you some context of how fast this guy's riding. He passes us at about 120 miles. Yep. So that's how much faster he was riding than we were. That blew my mind. It did me too. I I thought we would see the race leaders sometime Sunday, probably Sunday afternoon. And the fact that Saturday afternoon, mm-hmm. this joker comes flying by us just blew my mind. I mean, I just, I was, I was shocked that he made up that much ground on us that quick. Change your perspective on what's possible, what's possible on the bicycle. Yep. That's for sure. And, um, we make that climb through Vogel easy day. We end up getting to the Cooper Creek store, which was a dang oasis. That was my favorite stop. (laughs) I needed that Cooper Creek store. That was a dang oasis. Uh, It's this little store in Suchus, Georgia, that they decide to stay open 24-7 while the race is going on. They got a little kitchen in there. The people are very accommodating. They allow you to just sleep in the store. They've got really good food. I mean... For, it's like that's like 10 out of 10 yep. gas station food yep um it was excellent and uh they have all the snacks and everything that you need there they got a little pole barn out back that they're like yeah make yourself at home treat this place like it's yours let me start you a tab let me know what you want and um the problem with cooper creek store is is we pulled in there about nine o'clock yeah p.m and so it had just gotten dark. We had been on the road for a long time. Yeah, the climbs were hard, but we had had some downhill coming in there. We were kind of recovered. It's still early. And there was some tension around what we were going to do there because there was something in me that was like, oh, it's too early. It's too early to stop. I mean, you got to figure... We started the morning at mile 78, and we're finishing the day at mile 135. Yeah. So we've barely, I mean, we've barely covered any ground. Yep. I mean, you're still at 135, and this race is 370 miles long. And you've been now, this is the end of day two? Yep. 135 miles? I I, I had this tension, like, no man, like yeah, this is this is the oasis, but we can't stay here. We we gotta keep we gotta keep going. We gotta 
get some more miles under our belt. Um, and we talked about it. I mean, how do you remember that? I remember it that they had, uh, they had quilts. Yeah. <laughs> and we had gotten had really cold, got the, night cold the night before it was, it was, you know, I think we got in there at nine. We, we decided to eat there. They had lasagna and some food, which was real again, really good. Uh, I just remember you, you wanted to push on at least another 10 to 20 miles to a campsite. Um, I was ready to bed down there for the night, mainly because uh, the terrain early the next day looked pretty easy. So mm -hmm. I felt like we're, we're going to be able to cover that terrain pretty quick either way. Um, two, I felt like I needed a good night's sleep and I would get one there and it would be warm with the quilts that they had. Um, and then three, as we got to looking at the mileage, we knew, well, I knew I needed to make a significant stop in Mulberry for my bike Yeah, at Mulberry Gap, which we'll get to in a minute, but they had a little bike repair set up there. Um, and so I knew either way we needed to make a significant stop at Mulberry and that we were going to hit Mulberry the next day either way. Yeah, yeah. And so we could either do a shorter day that day or a shorter day Either way, it was going to be, you know, there's going to be a short day in there mm -hmm. uh, if we we're going to spend any time at Mulberry at all. Yeah, and it ended up being the right call to stay at Cooper Creek store. One, because I think, well, I don't think, their their food and stuff was way better yes. than Mulberry. Yeah, and we, um, yeah. we had the breakfast burritos that next morning. Yeah, I mean, really good. their food was off the chain, dude. Yeah. Um, so that ended up being the right call. We stayed there, got some good solid rest, refueled, got the tanks back to full, and got up the next morning and took off. Now we rode from Cooper Creek store all the way to Mulberry Gap. And I remember thinking, Man, that's a haul. Yeah. That that was a haul. That was from mile one thirty five to mile two eighteen. But in between there was a little section called Stanley Gap. Stanley Gap is where the bike pushing started started yep. for the first time. So up to this point we've been able to ride our bikes the, the whole time. There was no pushing the bike. But we get to going up Stanley Gap, and that was when it began. Stanley Gap is just, it's right outside of, outside of Blue Ridge, Georgia, and it's just a steep, long, steep climb. And uh, it's rocky. Rocky and, and rooty and rutted out, and it's so long and so, so the pitch of it is so steep, you just, you just can't ride it. I mean, maybe there's a few sections if your bike wasn't loaded down with gear, you could hammer through. But no, no, nobody with their bike geared out, uh, packed out, is riding that thing. Yep. Yep. Yeah, that was our introduction to what it was going to be like to push these heavy dang bikes. And, you know, I, speaking of heavy bike, that I believe there's two options to riding this race. You either ride with your bike similar to, to Abe's bike, where it's just bare bones, Hydration, nutrition, 
that's all you got. Maybe yeah. a little small repair kit, but even that's needs to be very minimal. Yep. No sleep system, no extra layers, no puff jacket, no no none of this crap, man. Um, or you ride like we rode, and you have everything, and you're able to basically be self-contained. Yep. You know, you don't need a store to stop. You don't need a shelter. You've got shelter with you. You've got, but you're just going to be so much slower. Yep. I mean, I didn't realize how much having a heavy bike was going to slow me down. Yep. I'm a strong dude. I mean, I have strong legs. I'm fit. I thought I can handle a heavy bike, but no, it, it definitely, definitely slowed us down. Yep. Especially when you start those long climbs, steep climbs, or you start having to push it, push it. or carry it. It's like, oh, yeah, that's when I, difference. that's when I really noticed it for sure is when I was pushing it. Uh, went by the mountainside market that evening at mile 184. After that was we a got, great little stop. Yeah. Up and over Stanley Gat mountainside market, got a good sandwich there. So that was basically sufficed for a dinner. Yep. Um, big couple big climbs up out of there a couple steep climbs up out of there and then finally we get to these dang single track trails that lead down into this place called mulberry gap it's a mountain biking park i guess resort like, yeah, yeah like resort kind of thing but this was the first time i had ever been on true downhill mountain biking trails really good well groomed well maintained fast but fast trails yeah yeah, yeah. and I, I remember because you you can go now on those trails it's different than hickory nut yep you can go down those trails as fast as your mind will process what's in front of you yep and as fast as your skills will allow you to go and I remember going down those trails and it was nerve wracking to me, dude, because I'm thinking, man, and these trails are n super narrow. Whereas Hickory Nut, you could drive an ATV yeah. down Hickory Nut, but these were single track mountain bike trails. And I'm just thinking, I'm not interested in getting wrapped around a tree here. <laughs> and there were a couple of times where like I would, I would make a wrong move, like hit a rock wrong or something, and I realized I, I, I would, I, I would correct and get back on course. But I realized two consecutive wrong moves, you're off, you're gone. Yep. There's just no real margin for error. No. Yeah. Like if you hit, if you hit a rock wrong, and then before you can correct, there's another one. You're, you are into a tree from 30 miles an hour to dead stop and that's that's breaking something man Yep, that's a bad day yeah so you are way better on that stuff than i was i mean you are much better descending on those trails much more comfortable much faster i kind of hung back and was just getting a feel for those things because i had never seen anything like that before yeah. yeah and that's that's more of what i'm used to riding is that well-groomed, well-maintained single track. Yeah. My problem is I get a little overconfident on it. Yeah. And I wrecked. Uh, I wrecked coming down off of there. Mm -hmm. You know, it was it was dark. I was just I was trying to use a headlamp on my helmet, and it kept slipping off, and I was going faster than I needed to go and uh, took one hard fall 
that oh yeah that stung and then uh, got back up and I probably didn't ride another 10 minutes remember that one where I about I mean I my bike hit the tree and somehow yep. I had the wherewithal to kind of shove myself off and go around it but uh but yeah I had two little two little crashes there within probably 15 minutes of each other mm-hmm. right before we popped out at Mulberry yep yeah, we pop out, pop out to the the fire a fire road. Finally, remember how ready we were to get off of that single track? Yep. Because yep. it's dark. Yeah, and and it's just so mentally taxing. We were so ready to get off of that stuff. I mean, in the daytime and fresh, it'd be an amazing place to go ride your bike. Yep. But we had had enough of that crap. Yep. We popped out on this thing on this uh, fire road. Here comes these two cats in a jeep. I was. I, I'm assuming you were right. They, they're they're two, two old fat white guys driving the jeep, and two guys in the back seat of the jeep, and two bikes on the back of the jeep. But the guys in the back seat, I think, were they were quitters. Were guys that had quit the race, yep. and they were hauling them back to Mulberry Gap. Is right, like the midway point of the race. It's like the headquarters of the whole race. So if you quit. Mulberry Gap will send the shuttle out volunteers to come and pick you up and bring you back to Mulberry Gap, where I think most of the people competing in the race, that's where their vehicles are at. Yeah. So um, they said, yeah, man, it's it's only one mile from here, and it's all downhill. No, that wasn't true. <laughs> that wasn't even a little bit true. That wasn't true. It, you know, it's amazing how you don't notice – really slight grades obviously when you're driving in a vehicle you don't notice them you just kind of roll through them but when you're on when you're on that bike man every little small just you know five percent grade you you know it yep you know you know you're on it we roll into mulberry and it's another like oasis of resupply hot food have the bike mechanics there which those guys were super good accommodating um you could tell they really loved being there and being able to serve the riders that was cool man yeah i loved that's you know i was so excited to get there or my bike to get that rear wheel trued, see what they could do. I kind of pushed my disc back and straightened it mm-hmm. out a little bit so it wasn't so bad. It wasn't rubbing every time the wheel turned. But, man, that those guys, the way they just, like, they, he could have just spent 10 minutes truing my bike and, you know, bending on the disc a bit and then slapped it off and gone to the next one. But, man, he washed my bike cleaned out the rear cassette, all the goop and stuff that was in there, re-lubed yeah. everything, made sure everything was shifting. Well, I mean, basically gave it a full tune-up and just just did it. Just did it, man. Just did it. That no was really cool. expectation for anything. I, I just, I thought that was just, just fantastic. Yeah. Well, I mean, when that guy got done with my bike, it was cleaner than it was when I started the race. <laughs> yep. That was, was legit, man. That was. That was a great, that was a great, that was a great stop. Yep. So that was a long pull, and it definitely made sense to stay at Mulberry. Yeah. Late in the night, uh, long pull. We were happy with the ground that we covered, I think, yep. when we got to Mulberry. It was really no question. Yep. 
of, of leaving there and pushing on or staying there. Yep. Um, the lady, Jackie, working the, the counter, tried to sell me a spot on the couch. You bought into it. I, <laughs> you bought into it. I said, I said, Jackie, I don't need a couch, man. You you got you care if I sleep on that back porch out there in my bivy sack? She wanted ten dollars for me to sleep on a couch. <laughs> she sold me on that she couch. She got you on that couch, and son. Then, and then I woke up about two AM and I walked over to her and I said, Hey, you reckon I can move over to one of them cots over there? <laughs> Couch was about. I'm about six three. That was a short couch. That couch was about uh, a five foot couch. Yeah. So it didn't. Did you move to a cot? No. Somebody had just somebody else had come in and, and oh, snagged okay. it up. So okay. I ended up sleeping on that couch all well, night. I slept good out there on the porch in my bivy sack, and uh, we woke up at five a.m. Yeah. Same time we woke up at Cooper Creek, five a.m. So woke up at five a.m. at Mulberry Gap, and. Uh, my alarm goes off and I kind of unzip my bivy sack and I, I look up and there's a guy in the dark standing at the foot of my bivy sack working on some piece of gear or something on a, on a picnic table there at the foot of my bivy sack. And I could just tell by his posture, I knew who it was. It was my buddy, Kevin Bilbrey from right here in Rome. And the dude's out of it. So he also started Grand Depart. So now he's caught up with us. He was kind of in the front of the pack there. Okay. I knew he would be he's a really good mountain biker. Um, but these just, you have these weird moments during these events. And that was one of them for me. It's like waking up at 5 a.m., it's pitch dark, and here's this dark figure standing at the foot of the bivy sack. But you can tell by his posture and, and his height and just the way he's standing, you know who it is. And and then you're like, hey, Bilbrey. And he's out of it. And, oh, hey, hey, man, what's going on? Like, there's just these weird freaking moments, man. I remember having, it, it always brings me back to going on deployments in the Navy. Like, you had you, you had weird moments all the time, like walking into a, walking into a, a hotel in in some crap hole country in Africa and meeting Jesse Jackson and like <laughs> just these weird things and that was that one kind of had the same feel to it so talked to Kevin for a minute we got us a little chow a little coffee and uh headed out jumped back on that darn single track again yep right off the bat in the morning but now this time, it was uphill. Now we didn't have a we didn't have a specific goal when we left Mulberry Gap. Mm -hmm. Mulberry Gap's at mile two eighteen, and so we're just going in. I mean, before sunup, we're getting back on the trail. That's when you had your big wreck. Oh yeah, my big wreck. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Well, I, I stopped. Chad was struggling come, I, <laughs> coming out of Mulberry. Tell you how skilled of a mountain biker I am. This single track trail we were on coming out of Mulberry is cut into the side of a steep, steep mountainside, right? And it's just a little ledge that the trail's on. So I stop my bike and I'm going to get off my bike to do something, push it or something like that. And when I go to unclip my foot and step off the bike, I step down on the downhill side of the trail. Well, there's no ground there. It just goes down the freaking mountain. <laughs> so there I go. I'd step down. I go down. My bike goes down. 
So it was a static crash. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Luckily. Yeah. It was a static crash. Um, but once you get past Mulberry, there's really there's really no clear place to stop because you're leaving 184. Dalton is only 252. Yeah. So you 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 want to go past Dalton, but once you get past Dalton, there's nothing. There's nothing. There's absolutely nothing. So Dalton's too early. Um, but going through Dalton, we did get us some more chow that timed out about perfect. Yeah. What's that place called? Willie's. Willie's world famous hamburger. World famous, world famous son. Yep. And yep. Jokers was big nasty. <laughs> now I'm gonna tell you though, for for what we were doing, it was just right. I mean, I hit that daggone patty melt. And I don't think I had to eat anything for five hours after I ate that thing. That was the most dense burger I've ever had in my life. And the fries, I mean, it was a mound. It was two pounds of fries in that bag. There had to have been. Yep. We come out of Dalton, and now we're getting on my home turf. Like, as soon as we leave Dalton, any of you guys who have ran the Georgia Jewel race or any of that, um, for me, it's my backyard. These are my home trails. So now I'm in terrain that I know. And actually, for me, that made things easier. Hmm. That's strange. I, I think it could affect people in maybe different ways. But the when we got, when we climbed up out of Dalton and got on the Pinhoti up there on Snake Creek or Snake Creek Gap, I guess the approach trail. Uh, going across the ridge, the fact that I knew where I was and I had been on those trails multiple times, it I think it it relieved me of some mental burden. Mm. Like I know where I'm at, I know where to go. I don't need to watch the GPS. Yeah. I'm good to go, you know. But that whole day was bicycle appreciation day. We told you the bike the bike hiking started at Stanley Gap, but that was a fairly short section and there was a lot of riding after that. Yep. Well, once we got out of Dalton, there was probably I don't know, 8 or 10 hours of just predominantly pushing your bike. So that that's where I learned what it was like to have an eighty pound bicycle and not be able to ride it. And when we finally got to the first section where we were able to ride, I appreciated being able to ride the bike instead of pushing it for the first time. Yep. You would think after riding for however many days you'd be you'd be ready for a break. But man, you pushed that bike for a couple hours and you you want you desperately want to ride it again yeah and we pushed it i mean it was just hour after hour it's just it's just saddle to summit rock garden steep uphill steep downhill just blowdowns like whatever i mean there were just just a large chunks that were just unrideable that we're just pushing another thing got to think about on that too you know some of that terrain through those rock gardens 
you know, at at the skill level you are, James, on the mountain bike, like some of that, you you probably could erode some of that that you pushed, but you're thinking you you have to weigh the cost yep. of like, okay, I'm, I'm in big bouldering rock right here. Could I balance my bike and move across this? Maybe so, but I'm but I am very likely to damage the bike on this rock. And again, if you damage the bike and, and it's it's unrideable, well, you're walking. The rest there's no bike shops yep. anywhere. Like from that point, from Snake, you're walking the rest of the way. Yep. And and that's a that would end up being a hundred mile walk. So you're having to weigh the cost of this terrain is potentially rideable, but it's super rocky. I'm not going to risk, you know, bending my my derailleur or bending a wheel or breaking something just so that I can ride a little bit faster across this than I can push my bike. So that's, that's again, you're having to calculate these things and make good decisions based off of that element of the race. Yep. And we did good. We came through there with a with zero issues, finally made it down to Dry Creek where we filtered water. You remember that thing that was making that noise or up the creek when I was like, I sure would like to know what the crap that that noise was coming up the creek, man. Yep. That's a strange place to me. Those woods have an odd feel about them. They don't have a welcoming feel about them. I don't know what it is, but that dang thing up there making that noise didn't help it at all. But every time I've been to that spot, there's just there's some, some sort of something there that yeah. I don't like. Yeah, and even though even that creek is just weird. I, I don't know what it is about it. It's not like it's not a beautiful mountain creek. It's the water kind of murky and yeah. it just doesn't feel doesn't feel like it belongs there. I don't know. I agree. I can't put my finger on it. Um man, we forgot to talk about your bear. Oh, yeah. Yeah, I did. Oh, I talked about that last week. Oh, did you? Okay. Um, but, yeah, I almost hit a bear coming down in the Mulberry Gap, yep. sitting in the dang trail. There's so much stuff that happened. Filter water at Dry Creek. We push on. We know there's nothing until we get to the daggone finish. So, it's getting late into the night at this point. And I think there was a point that I told you I think we if we can push on till you know two or three in the morning, yeah, before we bed down, it's going to set us up for a a good, you know, a manageable distance to the finish line the next day. Yeah. Well, we're pushing, we're pushing. About two o'clock rolls around. I keep telling James I had I had this campsite in mind. And uh, I keep telling James, well, yeah, we're getting close, man. We're getting close. Well, there was this climb that gains a ridge called Taylor's Ridge that I had forgotten about that was between where we were and this campsite I had in mind. So it's a big climb, and then it's a long section across the ridge. And for some reason, my mind had just blanked out. I thought we were closer than we were. And James... We get we get to the base of that. Maybe maybe we got to the top. Of, well, we're going up that climb, going and you're like, the "What climb. the crap is this, Chad?" And I'm like, "Oh, I forgot about this one." And maybe I think we get to the top, and you're like, "Chad, 
seriously, man, where's this campsite? <laughs> and I'm like, it's not much further. <laughs> Every time I'd ask, it'd be like, hey, it's it's not too far. It's not too far. You eating? You drinking? Make sure you're eating, drinking. Nothing changes. And in the back of my mind, I'm thinking, there's no stinking campsite. <laughs> this joker, this joker is gonna lead me. He's gonna lead me along as long as he can, believing there's a campsite, just to see how far we can push. That's a, that's a Chad mind game right there. And so I just decided right there. I was like, that's fine. I'm in it. I'm in it as long as he wants to go. I'm just going to keep pedaling. <laughs> so just to let you know, I did. I, I never did have it in my mind to push on to the finish. I, I, I knew we were going to need to stop and get some rest. Um, and I did have that campsite in mind. I was just blanking out about a couple little small terrain features that were between us in that spot. Um, but... We get we we coming down we coming down Taylor's Ridge, and that was a really cool section, I man. I, I don't know I don't know what it was. I don't know if I had just been on the bike for so long and I was getting really comfortable on the bike, but and, and it was late at night. But I just I just got into this mode where everything just all of a sudden felt effortless yeah. coming down through there. Like I wasn't even have to think about it. I was just flowing down through there. That was probably my favorite section of the whole race for me that was uh usually so usually the way the route would go or the way chad and i would ride is we were going uphill he'd usually lead the way because he'd be a little faster on the uphills than i would and then we got to the summit we'd refuel take a you know take a drink of water and then we're going downhill especially if it was technical i'd go ahead because i'd be a little faster on the on the downhill that night i just said you know what chad you go first because i don't I don't want to, I'm, it's, I'm tired. I'm getting wonky. I don't want to, I don't trust myself to hold back downhill. I'll end up wrecking and hurting myself and we're too close to, to risk it. And, uh, and so I rode behind you on that downhill and that's the time where I'm like, all right, old Chad's a mountain biker now. Yeah. That was the first you time we're cruising down that stretch. I mean, I was, I was giving it all I wanted to give it and was bare i mean i was barely hanging with you like you were just you were just cruising and it was unexpectedly good trail and the nature of the trail too was like it was almost like this i don't know what it, i can't remember what it looks like during the day i know we did it during the rock course but uh, actually went through there at night at during the rock course yeah. too i think but with the headlamp with the lights on it almost looks like it's like a white pulverized rock or something is and so you can Stands actually out. really see the trail well and it was just, it was, that was just, that, I agree. That was probably my, the funnest part of the whole, in terms of riding mm -hmm. for me was down there. It was just, it was just fun. Yeah, it was, it was, it was, it was perfect. It wasn't so, it wasn't so intense as those uh, Mulberry Gap. Coming down, yeah. Coming yeah, down the bear. It, it was just, it was just right to where you could just kind of let go. And that was the first time in the whole race that I actually felt like a mountain biker. I feel like my skills on the bike got better throughout this ride by necessity. Yeah. Like I would have, I probably skipped like a whole year's worth of learning to ride the bike and just kind of by necessity got to that level of skill, skill within a few days because of the, the terrain we were crossing. Um, 
roll down into the campsite, which is a really cool spot. And the, what made that spot cool and the reason I really wanted to get to that particular spot, one, because there's water and there's not much water through there. So I knew there was water there. But two, because two, it was two or three years ago, I went to that spot and did uh, I fat I just did like a fast a 24 hour fast down there at that spot on that creek I just sat there didn't bring anything with me other than my shelter and um, I sat down there and just kind of fasted and prayed for a whole 24 hours time span and hiked out while I was doing that a few years ago though that's the first time I ever saw two uh, TNGA riders came through there while I was camping there. I had no clue that TNGA was even a race, mm. had no clue people bike packed, had no, and I saw these guys coming down on these bikes loaded out. And man, they looked beat. I mean, they looked beat down. And I remember thinking, like, what are these cats doing? What are, like, what is what how what is on their bikes like their bikes are loaded down with gear and stuff and and that was the first my first exposure ever to the race and at the time I didn't even know it was a race and so then to come full circle and be back in that same spot actually doing the race that was really cool for me uh, got a couple hours of sleep there yeah, that uh, that day. Well, I guess what was that day four then? Yeah, yeah, that would have been that was that that was a big day. I mean, I think we were we started riding about from Mulberry about six or six thirty a.m. I mean, we still had lights on, and then we rode till at least three a.m. So that was our biggest day. That I was think. our biggest day. We covered a lot of miles over hard terrain, a lot of hours. We managed our stops in Dalton. I felt like pretty well. Like we mm -hmm. had lunch there, but we weren't. We didn't hang out for hours. We just grabbed lunch, went to the grocery store, grabbed what we needed, and we're back on the trail. Yep. Yeah, we covered ninety five, ninety six miles that day. I think. Um, and before we move on to the last day, I do remember having a moment at that little grocery store we stopped at in Dalton. I have these moments every time I go out and do stuff like this where you're getting toward the end. And I always have these moments where I'm like, I was sitting out in front of this grocery store in Dalton and thinking, you know, I'm now, by this point, I am in it. Like, I'm, I'm, I'm in the mode. And I just remember thinking, man, this is going to be over soon. And it always makes me a little bit sad. You know, it just, that was that moment for me. It's like, man, here in a day or two, this is, this is over. Yeah. And here I'm in this, I call it like full savage mode, dude. You're just living. Yep. I mean, you're just living, dude. You're not worried about how you look, how you smell. Nothing. How, like nothing. It's just, you're just all about the mission. Yep. And I always get a little sad when I realize it's going to be over soon. And we head out the next morning. Still got a lot of hard trail across Taylor's Ridge. Drop off a high tower. Mm -hmm. And that was the last climb and descent. Yep. Coming down off a high tower. Bunch of rail trail down along Highway 100. 
crappy, just crappy trail. Overgrown. And it's literally 20 yards from the road. You can see the road the whole time. You yeah. look over to your left, there's a nice paved road, and we're just on this horrible overgrown briars flapping you in the face and across ruts. your arms. Ruts. Oh, that's... I don't. Maybe it's just because you're you're so close to the end too. But that's my least favorite section. I've heard a lot of people say that's their least favorite section. It just and it feels like it goes on forever. There's nothing to look at. Mm-mm. Dogs chasing you. Yeah, no redeeming value. Freaking to it rednecks. Freaking third world <laughs> uh, shanties everywhere. Yeah, I think Chattooga County is. I think one of, if not the poorest county, really in in the whole state. Um, but yeah, it fits the, it fits the character of the race. Yep. yep. There's a beautiful paved road right there, 20 yards to your left that you could be riding 15, 20 miles per hour on, Yep. but you're stuck on this rail trail at five, six miles per hour, just getting chased by dogs and going through ruts and mud and briars and yep. everything else. It just fits the character yep. of the race. Um, get out of that long highway section after that through Coosa, come into Cave Springs. We didn't even think about stopping no. at Cave Springs. We were cool little town. It is. We we were within fifteen miles, sixteen miles of the finish at that point. It's like let's roll on through. Yep, roll on through Cave Springs. A little more single track coming out of Cave Springs. Just that, that was nice single track though. Yeah, it, it was, was pumpy. I mean, there was. A bunch I didn't want to be on it if yeah. I'm honest with you. There's a bunch of little short climbs and stuff, but. Um, but it was well maintained at least. There yeah. We weren't having to push our bikes or Yep. And uh take it on in, jump on the Silver Comet Trail and take it on across the finish. Now at the finish line there were big crowds of people, <laughs> bands, yep. music playing confetti. Press was there to do you know, get our interviews, yep. everything. It was it was big, man. Uh no, really, we crossed the finish line, and there were three people there, yep. but the three right people, yep. and that's what matters, man. It's probably my, f- if I could pin down, like, one of my, no, if I could pin down my favorite aspect of these bikepacking races, it's the grassroots nature of them. It is my absolute favorite aspect of mm. it, is, we didn't tell you guys, this race, you know how much it costs to enter this race? Zero dollars. You know how you enter? You send a rent a, a random email that you have to even figure out how to, to send it. Find the address. Yeah. And you send a random email saying, hey, I'm going to do the race. And then you wait for months. And finally, somebody sends you the GPX file. And you have to talk to people to even figure out when and where it starts. And then you get to the end, and there's nobody there. There's no metal. Nothing. There's no picture, like no photographer there. I mean, thankfully, Brooke was there, but like. There's not, like, there's nobody. There doesn't need to be anybody there to, I mean, like, nobody needs to be there to record your time because they just look at the tracker. When did it stop moving? Yeah, when did the tracker stop moving at the finish line point? But we had three right people there, Brooke, Jennifer, and Justin Sheely. 
And Justin's the whole reason I even do any of these bike packing things. He's he's been the one who got me into it. And talking about the grassroots nature of this stuff, you have to know somebody that's into this stuff and has been into this stuff to really even understand how it works or how to do it. Even from a gear perspective, like I I would I've been mountain biking my whole life. I would have no idea what and it's not easy to find like what type of gear back bike packs you need for a race like this how they attach like what you want to stay like there's not it's such a niche sport that unless you know someone and that's where like justin was just such a generous dude such a lifesaver when it comes to something like this because you just send you so he just sent me a list here go buy this yep I'll help you put it on. I'll help you fit your bike. I'll help you do whatever. And he did, man. He was, and then for him to be there at the finish was really, really great. Yeah. Yeah. And all the, all the gear and stuff now, even now, because this is such a small kind of, um, I don't know what you call it, but like a, a small little niche type of, it's like ultra running was, I would say in probably the, I don't know, 90s, early Mm -hmm. 2000s. That's what this is like now. And all the gear and stuff is handmade. Yeah. This is all, I mean, there there are people out there who have companies, but they're hand-making the gear themselves. Yeah, if you were to decide today, I'm going to go do TNGA next week. I'll just go order a bunch of gear. Good luck with that. You ain't going on Amazon. No, it's going to take you um, six weeks to get anything in the mail. Yep. Yep. Because it's got to be made. Yep. So, how'd it feel to finish? It felt good. It felt good. Yeah, it's that tension. We talked about it even while we were sitting there at the at the race. It's like, I'm glad to be done. Uh, I feel like we really accomplished something. Like, that was, that was a push. That was tough. It was everything. I, it was as tough as I thought it would be. Uh, maybe even at some points a little more. And, um, it, but it felt, it felt like a legitimate accomplishment. Mm-hmm. And to your point too, I even like the nature of like you finish and then you and I and Brooke and Justin and Jennifer just sit down at the picnic table and have a cold drink and just share stories for an hour. And then we pedal back out of there to the truck and go home. Yeah. That's, that's it. It's a hard shift, man. Yep. It is a hard shift. When I finished, of course, as usual, I didn't want it to be over. I could have, yeah, I could have just kept riding. Um, But I didn't, I really didn't comprehend how much of a whooping that put on me Hmm. until later that evening. Because we finished pretty early. Yeah. And we went back home. And I, I, I even called you. Yeah. Cause a couple hours after being home, I freaking crashed, dude. Like I could barely think, keep my eyes open. My body was sore. I was like, what the crap's going on? I didn't, I didn't, I didn't feel any of this, you know, while we were riding across the finish line just a few hours ago. But there's some, there's something that flips off in my brain. And when I, when I, when it does flip off, 
I just crashed hard, dude. And I remember calling you and being like, hey, dude. You all right? Uh, yeah. How are you doing? Because I just crashed hard, man. It's funny how powerful the mind is because I, I remember um, I remember two years ago when we did the paddle trip down the Altima Hall. There's this somehow when you're, some, at least me personally, when I'm engaged in these things like this bike race or the paddle mission or whatever, and during the paddle mission, uh, I had gotten coronavirus. Everybody on the team got coronavirus during the paddle mission. It didn't hit me, and it hit me literally. It manifested its symptoms the moment we were finished. Hmm. Like your body, your mind can actually somehow even stave off sickness until it flips this switch and you tell it you're done. And then it just, you start to feel everything. It's crazy how powerful a mind yeah. is, man. So I didn't realize how erect I actually was until, you know, a few hours after. And then these last few days for me, like, we had Team PT Wednesday morning, so we finished Tuesday. Wednesday morning, Blake and Chili show up for Team PT, and it's a five-mile run, and I thought, well, yeah, I'm going to go out and run with them. Dude, I got out, and I ran, like, not even a mile, and I was like, I can't run. I'm not. This isn't good. <laughs> I'm out. This isn't good for me, and I just walked home. So, it really did take a toll on me physically yeah which is surprising which surprised me anyways because i didn't feel that way during the ride during the ride yeah i felt like i could just keep going but it did it took a toll on me yeah i had just a couple little nagging things during the ride the one that my achilles just got lit up and was hurting and a little spot on the back of my thigh but like you like the achilles thing was a pain it hurt but it wasn't like I it wasn't, I wasn't disabled. I could still do whatever I needed to do. I still never, a, never a concern of like, Oh, can I keep going? Yeah. But man, the net, like Wednesday morning, Thursday today, it's like foot's all swollen up. Keely's lit up hobbling around, but that thing was hurting. started hurting day two in the race. Yeah. Like it didn't do any of that while we were out there. It's really weird. It's like, as soon as I stop and as soon as the, the, you know, that regular flow of pushing yourself stops. It's like body just starts just I, I, reacting. Yeah, I don't understand how the brain's powerful enough to to keep things like that at bay, like yeah. inflammation, pain, even sickness. Uh, the weird thing, the one weird thing that happens to me when I'm out doing this, I told you about it, is like if we, like when we bedded down at Cooper Creek store and we said, okay, we're going to wake up at 5 a.m., well, I set an alarm, but I go to bed and I wake up at 4.58 just automatically. I come come awake. It's like, I don't, I don't even understand that, how my mind is somehow synced up with minutes yeah. and times, and it will wake me up two minutes before my alarm goes off from a dead sleep. Um. But that only happens when I'm in that mode that I'm talking about being in. So it's pretty cool. 
uh, definitely the mind is way more powerful than well than we can even comprehend when we see it manifesting these things uh when we're out here all keyed up mm-hmm. and we're we're so honed in and so focused on a goal and it's able to to work these kind of strange things and stave off all these feelings and fatigue and the whole nine yards and then as soon as you turn it off it all hits you so it was a good ride man you gonna do another one i don't know i mean i'm a, i'm still in for hurricane yeah uh I, I'm, i'd like to, i'm gonna do that one um yeah i'll do i don't know i'll do another tnga or at least not next year i mean i may but not committing to any of that any of that right now well i can tell you hurricane's a whole different experience so hurricane is a, another bike packing race down in florida put on by a guy named carlos he's a master route builder it's what he does for a living he links up all these mountain bike routes but he actually creates routes to be enjoyable <laughs> like he wants you to have a good time yeah. like like there's a brewery on the route okay. like um you know, you're going through all these really pretty places and awesome mountain bike parks. I mean, it's Florida, yeah. you know. He could find some nasty stuff if he wanted to, but yeah, it's a whole it's a whole different experience. Although it is uniquely hard in its own its own respect. Um, instead of rocks and roots and hills, you got sand and palmetto roots and a lot of wet trudging through knee deep waist deep water at times so it's got some hard sections in it but it's got a lot of beauty to it too so whole different experience so i am looking forward to going and doing that again and then for me i think i think i i like this stuff so much i don't know that it like i'll ever i don't know that i'll ever go hard so hard into it that i like quit running and stuff but i do like it so much that i think my ultimate goal with this would be to do the uh, the um the uh tour divide which is from banff canada to the mexico u.s border it traverses the entire rocky mountains i think it's like 2600 miles or something so that's my ultimate goal kind of what i want what i would like all this to lead to but there's plenty of things out there to do in the bikepacking world I know the Colorado Trail Race, that appeals to me. That does me too. Yeah. I would definitely do that one. That's a big one. So I'm going to keep spending money. (laughs) That's what it is. Another big difference. Beat beat yourself up and spend money to do it. That's bikepacking in a a summary. Another big difference between bikepacking and ultra (laughs) running. A pair of shoes is 100 bucks. Uh, A new bike is 3,000 bucks. If you're going to get something that's halfway decent, yep. if you want the best, go ahead and get ready to spend about 10 grand. Yep. And then, and then start adding on all the packs yep. and gears and racks. And oh So it is a lot more expensive for sure. Well, I hope you guys enjoyed this, uh, after actions report on the TNGA. And, um, again, if you've rode mountain bikes, you know, on your local sidewalk and, stuff like that this is a good event for you so go sign up for next year we'll talk to you guys next time we love you oh james yes i wanted to put i wanted you to put out 
what you're doing right now. Oh, awesome. Yeah. Yeah. So I'm just, uh, I'm launching a new organization called Beyond. The website is beyondexperience.co. And uh, we're targeting like 18 to 25-year-old young adults. And it's really all about creating experiences, uh, content, mentoring to help young adults develop spiritually, uh, to develop resilience, um, and to develop the professional skills that they need to be able to lead and yield influence out in their communities and their families in the marketplace as followers of Christ. So, uh, we do all sorts of awesome experiences, uh, everything from, you know, a backpacking trip to a sailing trip, uh, along the coast. Um, and then there's mentoring and content books, things that go along with it as well. So, uh, anybody listening that is in that age demographic or has knows somebody they love in that age demographic, we'd love the opportunity to to talk to them and serve them, get them involved. That's awesome. I love that. Thanks for asking. It's an awesome mission. Yes, I I almost forgot about it, but I definitely wanted that to be put out here. So y'all check that out, man. James is uh, an amazing human and an awesome friend and mentor to me. So promise you, if you're going to do some work with him, you're not going to be disappointed. All right, now... It's actually time to sign off. Love you guys. Enough said.